the battered, mud-stained athlete slowly hobbles from the field. Exhaustion and anxiety pull at his face, and something is definitely wrong with his legs. Attentive coaches run to help him. Commentators build the anxiety level among the worried fans until there comes the reassuring comment. It's only a muscle spasm, folks. He'll be okay to take the field again next week. With a collective sigh of relief, attention is once again riveted to the resumed action on the field. And yet, as the biblical Jacob drags his weary self across the lines of our Genesis lesson, the limp may look familiar, but the setting certainly is not. There is no stadium, no floodlights, no grandstands, no cheering crowds. There is only a riverbank and a sunrise for a, bra- a backdrop. And here we have no tall, trim, young athlete hero, but rather a middle-aged guy with gray in his beard, a bulge in his belt, and two wives with 11 kids anxiously awaiting his return. That's what we've got. This story of Jacob at the Jabbok River near Peniel, just east of the Jordan River in the Gilead district of the Holy Land, it's an unusual tale, and it raises really a lot of questions. But there are three questions in particular that get at the heart of this Jacob story. With whom is Jacob wrestling? Why does Jacob come away from the struggle with a limp? And why is Jacob given a new name? And there is a fourth question. What does all of this have anything to do with us today? So to the first question, who is this unseen assailant wrestling all night with with Jacob? Imagine for a moment that you are Jacob. You are returning after many years of exile, years in which you have prospered greatly at the expense of your father-in-law Laban, years in which you have almost forgotten how long ago you cheated your own twin brother, rough and hairy Esau. You've cheated him out of his rightful inheritance of his father Isaac. Esau was born first, albeit only by a couple of minutes, and they named him Esau, which literally in the Hebrew means hairy. Then you, Jacob, came out of Rebekah's womb, perhaps seemingly grabbing Esau's foot since they named you Jacob, which literally means in the Hebrew, he who grabs by the heel. And you've been a grabber ever since, haven't you? 
You've used your wits to cheat your brother out of his inheritance. You deceived your own father, Isaac. You even bested the crafty Laban for whom you had to work double years, not just seven years, but 14 years to get your two wives. But you've become rich and you've become conceited, but then you had to flee for your life into the wilderness, didn't you? You camped under the stars and dreamed of angels moving back and forth from heaven as if on a ladder. Now, as you near your home turf, you hear that Esau is coming to greet you with 400 very nasty and very well-armed men. Some greeting. A flash of the old panic flares again. You, 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 you try to cool your brother off by sending him gifts, by sending him messengers of peace. You even send your own wives. You send Leah. You send Rachel. You send the 11 kids with them to intercede on your behalf. And having done all you can do, you, you're tired. You settle down to sleep, if possible, by the river. And suddenly, out of the dark, a strange assailant grabs you by the throat. Ah, oh, Esau, the bloodthirsty rascal, come for revenge. Surely that's your first thought. As you gasp for breath and claw to break free of the gagging, choking grip. But as you grapple in the dust and sweat of the pitch black night, a wilder and more fearsome thought begins to dawn. Ah, this is no human power you are wrestling with. A demon, then. The river spirit of the Jabbok springing up like the mists of the night to challenge your crossing. According to the mythology of the time, like the Dracula legend, night demons could not be active in the daytime. You struggle even harder, straining to get the upper hand when just as dawn starts to break, you are flung to the ground with the realization that this is neither man nor demon, neither boogeyman nor brother you've been fighting all night long. No, no. You have been struggling with other, none other than God, the almighty God of righteousness. Now, I don't think that uh, Jacob's struggle should seem all that unfamiliar to us. Haven't we all felt at one time or another that life is a uh, wrestling match with no rules and no referees? I don't think Jacob's struggle that night was only with God or a messenger of God. I think Jacob was also wrestling with his own past and his present, his own inner self. And so we also struggle. We struggle to make a living and to make ends meet. Some of us struggle with competitors, those who've got their sights on our, the same jobs or positions or, or customers that we'd like for ourselves. 
Maybe even in the life of the church, possibly. Others struggle with chronic pain or illness, never seeming to find relief. And don't we struggle against demons too? At least we might call them demons, powers within us and and around us that would grip us and drag us down, such as envy, bitterness, guilt, and feelings of, ah, hey, who cares? Nobody cares. Let somebody else do it. We all struggle with one thing or another from time to time. Recently, a whole lot of people locally had to struggle with demon fire out here and with wind and water back east. But in our text, we cannot avoid the fact that Jacob also wrestled with God. I mean, what's that all about? God is supposed to bless us, right? To care for us, to bind up our hearts and wounds, right? But think about it. Don't we wrestle with what it means to be a Christian person in the everyday situations of our home, our school, our job? I know that I struggle a lot with what I know all too well Christ is calling me to do and to be as his disciple. The fact is that the love, the commitment, the discipleship to which God calls us can be costly in terms of our time, our talents, our resources. And so we, we know who Jacob wrestled with at the Jabbok because deep down we share the same struggle with him. We too struggle with God, and we struggle with our past, with our present, and with God's will for our lives from time to time. And when Jacob desperately held on, his prevailing desire was not for escape, but for something decisive finally to happen to him. And I think this is in contrast to the shallow or the cowardly person, and so it can be for us. And so we've answered perhaps the first question with whom Jacob and we wrestle. Now for the second question, why is Jacob limping? Until fairly recent years, we've often referred to handicapped people as uh, cripples, a term we now know as condescending at best and judgmental at worst. Do you remember the fiasco surrounding the Secretary of the Interior during the Reagan administration, James Watt? And his comments about his associates, he says, I have on my board a black, two Jews, a woman, and a cripple. And so the more modern term, and he got fired pretty quickly after that, by the way. So the more modern term is handicapped. And yet even that word reflects a general feeling that, well, limpers don't stand too much of a chance in a fast and furious world. Hmm. And yet here is Jacob, a man destined to carry the hope and promise of God, and he walks into that destiny with a limp. 
Some Christians may tell you that folks who live really close to God, who've really felt God's powerful, renewing power of love, can throw away their crutches. They may tell you that faith in God alone takes away all our problems and pains. And that's great when it does happen. Have you ever been to the Church of St. Anne de Beaupre outside of Quebec in Canada? If you have a chance, go there sometime. The pillars, the giant pillars inside that huge church contain lots of discarded crutches all up and down the pillars, thrown away after miracle cures. And that's great when it does happen. But why do so many Christian people still hurt? I admit to being impressed by those pillared crutches. I really was. But you know what? I'm more impressed by the accomplishments that I witness when I watch the Special Olympics. I'm more impressed with that. So why does Jacob still limp after his encounter with God? It seems to me that, um, that Jacob's wounded hip is a sign that when we struggle with what God calls us to do and to be as God's people, we and are finally overcome by God's grace, we then become more vulnerable, more likely to get hurt than those who choose to always play it safe and avoid meaningful human contact and deny God's call to a risky life of caring for others. When the mysterious antagonist touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and, and put it out of joint, it was a symbol of the fact that Jacob was in the grip of a power that which his self-assurance could not match. Jacob knew that henceforth he could never walk in lofty and haughty arrogance again. Jacob had been a person who dislocated relationships and disturbed society, but never again. Jesus wasn't fooling when he said that followers, following him meant taking up a cross. The truth is that getting wounded is often part of being caring, of being giving, of being sharing, of being forgiving, and of being loving. The Apostle Paul reminded us that the, to draw near to God may mean to share in Christ's own sufferings. And so Jacob emerges physically lame, but spiritually regenerated. The point of all of this for us is that in God's great scheme of things, the wounded don't bear an enduring handicap so much as a mark of honor for having struggled and come to terms with God's love and purpose. And so we've discovered with whom Jacob was wrestling and why the morning sun finds his limping. But one further question remains. Why does Jacob, who struggles with God, get a new name? The story changes his name to Israel. 
or in Hebrew, Yisrael, El meaning God, the one who strives with God, Yisrael, the one who strives with God. And so the person born with the name Jacob, meaning the one who grabs the heel, a grabber of everything and everyone he can get, is given a new name by God, Israel, the one who strives with God. In verse 27 of our text, notice that God asks Jacob his name. Jacob gives God his name and therefore gives God access to the core of his character. You see, for us today, to have, to have God having to ask Jacob his name seems kind of silly, kind of ludicrous. Uh, since God is presumed to know it by the very nature of being omniscient. But in those primitive times, there was a belief that to know a name, a person's name, was to have the key to control of that person. And so God was able to take Jacob's old name and give him a new one. Israel, meaning the one who has struggled with God or the one who has struggled to know what God wants for by very nature and who has emerged from the struggle to be blessed and to be a blessing to others. Now, what is of further interest is that two verses after God asked Jacob his name, Jacob, who is now called Israel, reverses the question and asks God what God's name is. In verse 29, Jacob, or now Israel, says, please tell me your name. The mysterious stranger says in reply, why is it you ask my name? And the stranger doesn't give Jacob his name. Now, God may be called Elohim or Yahweh or any number of other personal names, but there remains a distinction between humans and God, and it is one of limitation. We do not have the power to manipulate God for our own ends, or even though one such possibility is found in the old phrase, with God on our side, we'll win the next war. Is God on our side or are we on God's side? Suffice it for our God to be called what God is for us, the mysterium tremendum. Well, Jacob's new name, Israel, is also the name, as you know, of the people descended from Jacob. For several thousand years, the people of Israel have lived with the pain and the blessing of being vulnerable and faithful to and for God. And it's happening again right now in that land we call holy. The Church of Jesus Christ is also sometimes called the second Israel or the new Israel. And so we too are called to struggle with how to be faithful to what we know God is calling us to, to be and to do. But above all, as Christians, we bear the name of Jesus Christ who limped bloodied to the cross of Calvary and rose to bring wholeness and comfort, power and promise to us now and evermore. Now notice the place name of this incident by the Jabbok River. In verse 30, we read that Jacob named it Peniel, meaning the face of God. Jacob says he named it that because there he saw the face of God. 
When we interpret that, for Jacob, it means I here I have faced the truth about myself and I've decided to quit running away. So too with us, God wrestles with us to pull us into the good purpose that God has for us in life. It's not always the uh, pleasant experience some noted evangelists would have us believe. God sometimes jerks us around a bit in order to walk a new path we had not dreamed of taking. The Bible repeatedly uses the image of God as a, as a potter with, with a hunk of clay. And what does the potter do? He, he pounds and whirls the stuff of us on God's wheel until we are molded by God's fingers, until God creates in us a pot that can offer someone a cold, a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. So may God give us vision to recognize our hurts and our wounds for what they really are, the signs of God's love at work within us as bearers of God's love and promise. One further thing, I invite you to go home and read the beginning of chapter 33, the next chapter in Genesis. There, Jacob finally had to encounter Esau, and one has a right to expect a vicious outcome, a struggle of brother against brother with an expected bad result for Jacob. But we read that when Jacob came near to Esau, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept together. Then they journeyed on the way alongside of each other. May we join our journey to those of others who continually seek God's purpose for humankind. Amen.